So one thing that I would love for the business leaders who listen to this podcast to do is to not wait for the public relations disaster to get out ahead. And that's a hard thing to do when the landscape is changing as radically and as quickly as it is today. On this episode of the Responsible Business Podcast, I am speaking to Dr. Tiffany Vora, co-chair of digital biology and medicine at Singularity University and co-author of our anthology Ethics at Work. We're talking about how to infuse ethics into your business through insights from biomedical ethics. I hope you enjoy the episode. So we're here on the Responsible Business Podcast, where I'm speaking to Tiffany Bora. The topic today is infusing ethics into your business, insights from biomedical ethics. That's something that Tiffany knows a lot about, so a little bit about her background uh, before we welcome her. She's an educator, writer, research scientist, an entrepreneur based out of Silicon Valley. She's done PhD research in the Department of Molecular Biology at Princeton, which has led her to focus on emerging fields such as genomics, systems biology, computational biology, and astrobiology. She has served as a visiting professor at the American University in Cairo, been an instructor for the Department of Bioengineering at Stanford. She's currently faculty and vice chair of medicine and digital biology at Singularity University, as well as member of Homeward Bound Project for Women Leaders in STEM and a non-resident fellow at Geotech Center within the Atlantic Council. And so our conversation really takes the starting point of an essay that Tiffany wrote for a book uh, we have coming out on an anthology called Ethics at Work, Dilemmas of the Near Future and How Your Organization Can Solve Them, and her particular focus on what we can learn from biomedical ethics. Uh, but first of all, welcome and thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast, Tiffany. I am delighted to be here, Chris. Now, before we sort of dive into the topic, I would love to learn a little bit beyond the bullet points I just read out uh, of your impressive CV here on the journey you've been on, really, and what led you to from A to B to C to to talking about ethics within uh, biomedicine that we're speaking about today. Well, those bullet points certainly hit the high points. Let me fill in a, a little texture. So, you know, I my father is a chemist and I grew up in a house where we were very much interested in how things worked in the natural world. My mother was a, a hospital administrator. So I also spent time as a younger person uh, volunteering in a children's hospital in New Jersey and really kind of seeing what happens with patients as they come in with these really terrible diseases and the tight relationships that they can potentially form with the folks who are, are helping to care for them. Um, I went to college thinking I was actually going to become a medical doctor. And then while I was doing my undergrad work at NYU, I joined a genetics lab and I started to realize that I was just as interested, if not more interested in the questions that we didn't know the answers to, rather than thinking about the things we already knew. And so after a couple of years of um, real soul searching and, and sort of internal struggle, I decided to go to graduate school instead of to medical school. Um, but first I went and I worked for a pharmaceutical company for a little while. So that was also interesting for me getting to see the industry way of doing business versus the academic approach to doing biomedical research. Um, and then, uh, as you mentioned, I did my PhD work at Princeton. Uh, that was really great for a lot of reasons. Um, but then I actually decided to take a non-traditional 
career path. And instead of taking a research postdoc, which is what you would normally do in my case, I took a teaching position as a professor at the American University in Cairo. So I left the United States. Uh, This was before the revolution uh, in Egypt, lived abroad for a while, which I think was really important for my growth as an international thinker. And you know, as an American as well, I think we learn a lot about our systems when we step outside them and we look back. Mm. Um, and then I uh, came back to the United States to, to marry my partner, uh, who had taken a job at Stanford. And uh, two weeks after our, uh, about two weeks after I put in my resignation at AUC to get a job in the United States, um, that was 2008. So the global economy collapsed. Uh, and I came back to the U.S. Um, with no job and no sense of what I was going to do. And I ended up working as a science communicator. And after about six months of that, my husband said to me, why don't you start your own business? And I said, that's ridiculous. I'm a scientist. I don't know anything about starting a business. Um, but because I live in Silicon Valley, 12 hours later, I had started a business. And I spent 13 years growing that business and really sort of learning a lot about how we talk about science to each other, but also how we talk to the public about science. And it's actually through that work that I came to Singularity University, which is how I met you, of course. Um, and yep. I've, I've been able for the last um, four or five years now to be blending my work as a science communicator with advisory work with companies from little one-person startups all the way through to big multinationals. I've been privileged to be able to uh, advise governments on several approaches that they're working on that have to do with technology and, and healthcare or biotech or agriculture. Um, and now I'm just really excited to have a chance to connect with people all around the world because the future is going to be radically different from the past, which you and I know. And not only is that going to be affecting our daily lives and our governments, it's going to be affecting our businesses and what our businesses are expected to do. You know, business is an extremely old human construct. And we're just moving into this really unknown future. And so when you invited me to write this essay about ethics in business, I was really excited because I think we're seeing a tide that's picking up, but it's not actually clear how uh, that tide is going to be received by all the various stakeholders. So I'm looking forward to getting into this a bit more with you today. Wonderful, yeah. And uh, as you are pointing to, um, and we took the initiative to um, to put into the world uh, this anthology, Ethics at Work, and exploring with you and uh, a bunch of other contributors um, near future dilemmas, as we call them. Right? Some of them people might experience right now. Some of them, you know, they haven't even started thinking about uh, because of uh, exactly as you are pointing to, also the. The notion of um, all the uh, change we're seeing partly because of technological development and, and the implications of that also in how we can move forward into the future, combined with some of the obvious challenges such as the climate crisis, etc. Putting uh, pressure on uh, organizations out there, but also opening up for opportunity in regards to how to move uh, forward into the future more responsibly, right? And we'll talk a lot about that. And uh, um, actually, before we sort of get into looking at this from the biomedical perspective, which which you have done, um, I, I would like to just spend a minute talking about language. 
because you know there's this term ethics and you know to many it reeks of dusty books and you know ancient times uh, and great distance to reality right and uh, we had a lot of uh, i had a lot of thinking and i had a lot of conversations around what kind of language do we actually use about this stuff so that you know it resonates and it it, it seems relevant well what's your thinking around uh, the notion of talking about ethics in a business context and you know what kind of language to use here so I think how you encounter the concept of ethics really infuses how you view the word, whether you think of it as a dusty book or whether you think of it as a practicum. So my personally, my formal ethics training actually came when I was in graduate school. So I had it strictly from a science perspective, and I had it with a very famous bioethicist named Lee Silver at Princeton, and we did it over pizza and beer in the evenings. And it was very much about it wasn't about classical ethics. It wasn't about, um, you know, men in togas or, you know, however you think of that real classical structuring. I never had that formalism to my ethics education. My ethics education was, here's what you're likely to encounter in your career. Here's what has come before you. Particular, we looked at particular case studies. We looked at the law and we looked at where those laws came from. And then we said, okay, here are the ethical standards of our culture as scientists. How do you want to behave in that culture? What are your responsibilities? And also, what are your privileges? And so for me, it was a very, very practical thing. Um, there were no Greek terms whatsoever <laughs> in my ethics class. And I know there's a variety of ways to come at ethics. You know, some people really do want to come at it from that very classical formalism. I imagine for a lot of business leaders, though, knowing what's the landscape, what am I obligated to do, and then what is right to my business, to my culture, to me as a person, I think that really changes the conversation. Mm. And, and that's uh, exactly what we are, are going to talk about here, right? And, uh, and now, so you, uh, you look at this from uh, medicine and, and biomedical research to, to get, give us all insights into how to move more ethically into the future. And, and why is it that it makes sense to, to look there? Well, for, first of all, I'm speaking from my personal bias, of course. This is how I was trained. But I think one reason to look at it is, uh, so I'm an American scientist, so I came at it from that angle. And it, we had actually a history in the United States of some uh, medical behavior that today we would agree is not ethical. The, the most famous one of those is something called the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, in which uh, many rural black men... Uh, were either not told they had syphilis, told they had some sort of fatigue of the blood. And they were basically, their disease was allowed to run untreated for, for decades, many, many men, decades, even when a simple, cheap, and effective cure for syphilis was discovered, they were not given that cure just so that the doctors could see all the way through the course of the disease what that looked like. Now, there are a lot of problems with this that we can see today. But at the time, we didn't have safeguards in place where someone could say, this isn't right, we shouldn't be doing this, we need to treat people differently. So in 1979, um, there was something called the Belmont Report that was prompted by a bunch of congressional hearings where the government was forced, was basically called to account for what had happened with the Tuskegee syphilis study. And so the Belmont Report was a response to that and saying, okay, we had this terrible 
very public crisis that happened. Here's how we're going to do better next. Here is our new framework for thinking. So one thing that I would love for the business leaders who listen to this podcast to do is to not wait for the public relations disaster to get out ahead. And that's a hard thing to do when the landscape is changing as radically and as quickly as it is today. But anything that we do at the end post hoc is just sticking a Band-Aid on a bleeding wound. Instead, we have the chance to really go ahead and think from day zero, what are our principles? How do we need to behave? And by doing that thinking, you also have the capacity to attract employees to your company that share those values. That way you don't have these sort of potentially these, these ethical struggles from day one about What's your North Star and what are you all heading for? So for me, that's why I started with biomedical ethics. There's a very rich history of thinking in biomedicine, again, all the way back to the Greeks, right? We have the Hippocratic Oath. That is a formalism of what a physician believes to be the the real North Star of how they behave in their profession. And I think we have a lot we can learn from that. Mm. And, and, and so I've, I've had conversations around ethical business with business leaders uh, many times over the latter years here. And sometimes I encounter, uh, I think, a very valid question that is, you know, why do we need to design for ethics? Isn't this a natural thing for organizations and for individuals inside of organizations to behave ethically? What's your thinking on that question? I think I would like to believe that people are fundamentally good. Um, But I think, as we all know, when we start interacting in groups, people behave in groups in ways that they would not behave as individuals. So I think we have plenty of evidence from several hundred years of capitalism in particular that left alone, we are not necessarily holding up what for me, are the pillars of these ethics, again, um, based on um, based on biomedical ethics, right? Justice, respect, and doing good. Capitalism fundamentally is about maximizing shareholder value. I didn't say that when I said the three pillars of biomedical ethics, right? So I'm not saying that capitalism is fundamentally flawed. I'm saying that it just doesn't handle a piece of the equation that ethics handles. Similarly, ethics isn't involved in the money, isn't involved in the bottom line. These are two, I think, separate spheres of influence, but we have the capacity today to find ways to bring them together to make something new that's even stronger than either one in isolation. Mm. And uh, we will get to uh, to those three uh, distinct points you just made in a, in a second. But uh, a qu- one question before that is: um, now we we see now, and also at an accelerating pace, new industries, new types of jobs, new yeah, entirely new types of industries. What is the issue problem here with new industries in regards to ethics and acting responsibly? So, from my point of view, the issue here is that we have these incredible incredibly powerful technologies in particular that are giving us these superpowers that humans have never had in tens of thousands of years of our history. We are moving into entirely charted new uncharted territories, brand new territories. And so when I think just, for example, from um, a biology perspective, the fact that we can now change the source code of life in human DNA is a power we've never had before, the way we have it now. We've 
you know, GMOs, et cetera, agriculture, et cetera. But we are fundamentally at a different point now than we have ever been. And so if we don't take the time now to decide what's important to us, what do we value in terms of respect? What do we value in terms of doing good? If we just allow these technologies to go in whatever direction without having this conversation, then I don't think we're coming into a world. We're not focusing on building a world where as many people as possible benefit from these advances and these changes. And I think, as you mentioned before, with with climate change, with population growth, with all of these things, we're no longer in an everything is going to be fine mindset. That, That time has passed and that thinking has brought us to where we are today. So I think, Chris, what we've got here is a chance to do something fundamentally different moving forward. And if you want to go even more science fiction-y, what happens when people start colonizing Mars? What happens when people are living on the moon? When humanity is taking its next step, our institutions have to take the next step too. And that includes our businesses. So let's uh, refocus on the three foundations of biomedical ethics that you just briefly mentioned before here. Justice, doing good, and respect. Let's let's look at them one at a time to, to sort of see what is it and, and what can we learn from it, what can we use it for. Now, so justice in regards to biomedical ethics, what is justice? Basically, it means legality, respect for the rights of the individual, uh, protecting people who are vulnerable, and fair or equal, we can talk about that, fair or equal distribution of resources. Right. And uh, so when you then break it down here, uh, Justice, and you say we can talk about fair and or equal distribution, there are some potential built-in paradoxes here, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, uh, on, a, on a personal note, you know, you had asked me to write this essay uh, several years ago, and I remember working on it in one of the very last trips I took before the pandemic. So the essay that you got from me was pre-pandemic, right? It was this very specific moment in time. And so this issue of fair or equal, I think we're really seeing highlighted now in real time during the COVID pandemic, right? Um, We've talked about it with access to medicines. We've talked about it with vaccines. We've talked about a whole bunch of things. The example that I gave in the essay for your book was this idea of multiple people being in an emergency room and one person is having a heart attack and one person has a splinter. Now, if it were going to be equal, then you would probably be first come, first serve. So if the guy with the splinter walked in first, he would get treatment before the person having the heart attack. Now, I might argue that a more fair approach to that is give uh, the, the guy gets to go first is the guy having the heart attack. Like that's fair. It's fair to make the person with the splinter wait in order to save somebody's life. Now, that's a very extreme uh, scenario. But when we think again about business, asking ourselves what it is that our products or our services are are actually doing, right? Um, do you remember there was that uh, that episode of Silicon Valley where the the founder Pied Piper he was he was fed up. He was thinking about taking a job at another place, and he got there. And what they wanted him to do was work on a filter that would put a funny mustache on somebody's face. 
And he was like, this is not what I want to be spending my time or my skills doing. And so when I think about justice, I think about that as well. What is it that our product is actually doing for the world? Is it capturing somebody's attention so that I can feed them more ads for 30 more seconds? Or is it fundamentally fixing something in the world? To me, those are two very different things. And I know the kind of business person I am, I prefer to be on the fixing side than on the, um, I have a clear path to monetization, but I'm not actually making anything better side. Mm. And, and, and when you write about this notion of justice and, and, and also the other uh, foundational values or, or whatever we should call them that that we'll get to and 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 then we think about okay so i am not in the medicine or the biomedical space i am in whichever more traditional industry running an organization how do i take that principle those principles and adapt them to myself to to make meaning in regards to moving more ethically and responsibly into the future well interestingly again i i told you i wrote this essay pre pandemic it was also pre black lives matter so we have another big set of examples of what happens when there's a, some sort of organization that is fundamentally failing on respect and is fundamentally failing on justice. And so, um, again, a business leader, you don't have to believe that you're in healthcare or a doctor to do this. We're seeing this play out right now in the world. Um, so I think one of the things to do is always be um, aware of your own biases. This is something I, I wrote a bit about, um, and it's something that we spend a lot of time training in in science and medicine. It is basically hammered into us as scientists that we are wrong. And in fact, what we want is to be wrong. We are taught to value being wrong because if you believe that you're right, you're missing something. Um, the natural world is very sneaky. It likes to play tricks on us like that. And so we're taught to always ask, what am I missing? What have I got wrong? What would it take to change my mind? What haven't I actually tested? You know, we have another joke, which is never do the last control because the last control experiment is the one that blows the whole thing up, right? But if you're a business leader and you're also interested in experimentation in your organization, make sure you're always running that last control because I, I would love for you and your employees and in the safe space of your company to be detecting these problems rather than to launch into the world and then have your users detect them. Now, your users are potentially co-experimenters with you, your, your clients, but that means you have to have built that expectation in from the beginning. So again, the user kind of can get a little dopamine hit there and be like, oh, I'm actually helping make this better, not just for me, but for everyone rather than thinking, oh, I can't believe I spent money on this crappy product and it doesn't even work. So from a purely mercenary perspective, I think ethical practices and an ethical mindset for a business has the potential to vastly protect brand value and also to have more of a value exchange between you and your customers at the same time. Mm. And you write specifically in the essay building about building a dedicated space for stakeholder voices from the very outset of a product. Can you unfold that a little bit more for us? Sure. So I think there's a couple of pieces to this. So, you know, it's easy for us to think of innovation as being a couple of people in a garage, heads down, building something. Mm -hmm. 
that means that the environment that is influencing your product development is the garage and the people who are in it. We had an example, you know, for example, you remember when Facebook said, um, hey, India, we're going to give you all free internet. And India was like, hey, company in California that doesn't know what it's like being Indian. No, thanks. Right. So there are these very uh, famous misfires where someone has just kind of misjudged what the market is. This is also happens all the time in biomedicine where um, you might have a clinical trial, for example, for a disease, but the scientist designs the trial in such a way that the burden on the patient is too large. The patient maybe just can't get to the testing center that often. And since the doctor or the scientist isn't living that lived experience, they won't catch that. And so now there are, there's a movement inside biomedical science for clinical trial design to be including patients and patient advocates from the study design outset. That way you don't have to fix something later. You've built it from the beginning for your clinical trial to be um, doable and livable by the people that you're asking to participate in it. And so I would argue for um, these organizations and for businesses as well, whether it's focus groups, whether it's surveys, whether it's literally sending someone to the place where you expect your product or your service to be active, that can make a big difference. Whether if you are a medical innovator, getting someone to go walk the floor in the emergency room. Chris, you and I are pretending for a minute that the pandemic's not happening. So let's just mm -hmm. put that to the side. But walking the hallways of an emergency room um, really shows you what's going on. There's a famous uh, innovation class at Stanford in the medical school where they, they do that. They literally walk around the hospital to see what's going on. And then they figure out what's a problem they want to solve and how are they going to solve it. So whether it's a hospital, whether it's a school, whether it's a nursing home, um, any place where your clients are actually getting there and looking. And I think another important piece here is getting in there with the assumption that you know nothing and that you are listening and you are watching and you are asking questions. You're not going in there with the answers. And I think that humble mindset both enables you to connect more strongly with your customers. It enables you to build from the beginning this more ethical place where you're focused on respect and, and doing good and justice. But also you have a chance to make some really amazing breakthroughs as an organization if you come in with that level of humility. Um, I might actually add humility as one of my sort of ethical pillars as well. Just coming in and listening and learning I think makes you positioned potentially to be acting more ethically as well. And I guess it's also related to the third foundation for biomedical ethics, which is respect. And uh, I guess we could talk about empathy as well. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, design thinking, as 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 you are, you know, partly talking about also here, sort of the methodologies or, or thinking behind that, right? Which, of course, more and more organizations are also doing. Some have been doing for for many years. And even if we are talking about sort of design thinking practices of putting yourself in in a, a user's shoes, for instance, um, both metaphorically and, and literally in, in different ways. <clears throat> and then we talk about the need to move more ethically and responsibly uh, into the future. And, um, and, and to make it a very long question here, uh, because you, you mentioned a couple of times 
that uh, we first touched base upon this before the pandemic. The book's been on on, on the on the way for a couple of years. And um, and and in my opinion, in many ways, uh, you also mentioned Black Lives Matter, and that that turned out to become a global thing. That's right. right? And uh, we've had a lot of conversations uh, in in my family and 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 with others around and the notion that probably there's a relationship here because a lot of us, while obviously a, a lot of bad has come out of the pandemic, some of the good that has come out was that a lot of us got a chance to you know reflect pause a little bit and reflect upon what is the good life what do i want to spend my life on what is going on in the world what do i think about that and that we might not have had the chance to reflect so deeply on a thing like black lives matter and and, and looked upon it more as an american phenomenon if 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 uh, you understand me correctly please uh, but given that we've had that time to reflect around the world, we we actually thought about this and put it into our own context as well. So there's this whole feedback loop, really, uh, in regards to looking more critically at uh, what is right behavior and what isn't right behavior. So so uh, and and so getting to our question here, the whole notion of respect, empathy, uh, humility, putting yourself in, in, in the customer shoes, and then adding all of that uh, uh, into um, moving more responsibly into the future. Uh, it seems to me there, there are, there's, a, I don't know if it's more layers or another depth to it than there was, you know, even uh, a couple of years ago, or what you're thinking. I think you're right. I mean, the, the world is more complicated than it was a few years ago. Um, I think you're right about the layers. And I actually want to highlight something you just said, because it's, I think, extremely important. You mentioned the fact that we've all been forced to slow down for the last two years. And I know slowing down is anathema to many businesses and to you know classical business thinking. But the fact is, if we are always running, if we are always chasing the next thing, we are not slowing down and doing the deep thinking or giving us the, the time and the space to open up the big questions or to even activate our own empathy circuits, right? And I would love to invite your listeners to try to find a way to keep this sense of time for deep thinking, slow thinking, protected time for that as a core operating principle for your value. If you're uh, for, for your organization, if your employees are spending all day, every day, rushing from meeting to meeting and email to email, they're not thinking. Um, I, when I was running a, a team previously, I actually blocked off everybody's calendars with huge chunks of hours every week and called it protected time. And I told them, you have my backing as your manager to decline any meetings that anybody wants you to have during this time. And if they're upset, send them to me. I'll give you your air cover. And we were able to use that time to really either independently or in groups to really dig into the stuff and get to the root of the problems we were trying to solve. And so by having the time to get all the way to the bottom, then we were able to come up with various strategies and tactics to work our way back up. So I would just love to invite people to keep giving themselves the time, give yourself permission 
to slow down and to think. Give your teams permission to do that. Give them permission to ask the hard, nasty questions in a safe space, because that's how we're able to get ahead of these things that are ethical bombs waiting to go off, if not today, if not tomorrow, in five years and 10 years. That's what we can really, I think, benefit from this incredibly stressful and catastrophic experience we've all been through for the last few years. Yeah, we've seen a productivity increase in many businesses during the pandemic, right? But uh, to your point, that isn't necessarily the same one. Uh, you know, innovation and creativity, has that benefited or suffered? I'm, I'm leaning towards the latter. And the other one is actually being able to reflect properly on very difficult, complex things and questions, right? And the whole notion of moving into a, a an unknown future and we will be seeing more and more situations that we have never dealt with before, that we don't have the muscle memory to just, you know, listen to our guts to actually uh, know what is right and, and what isn't right. And um, and to that point, the, the third foundational element we wanted to talk about in that, that that we can learn from from biomedical ethics is the notion of doing good and in your essay you're also mentioning the notion of not doing good but don't be evil which google was famous for creating that credo right and then they abandoned it at at some point and so, so don't be evil and doing good is not the same uh, you are saying, I would love for you to unfold that a little bit. And then what does it actually mean when you decide not to don't be evil any longer in regards to how you look at the world? <laughs> That's right. So yeah, so Google famously had this don't be evil. Uh, it was both a motto for them, and it was actually in their corporate code of conduct. And in the middle of 2018, uh, as they were transitioning to being alphabet, First, they walked that language back, and then they eliminated it altogether. And I think there are some obvious reasons for why a company would want to do this. If you read their code of conduct now, it focuses on doing good. That's the language that they've used. So I think they've, it, there's, if I want to give a charitable interpretation, I would say, don't be evil. That's a really low bar, like mm -hmm. a really low bar, right? Doing good, I think, is actually much harder. And so if I'm being charitable, I'm saying they've actually raised the bar on what they expect uh, from a corporate standard. Now, less charitable interpretations are things like who gets to decide what's good and evil? We've seen a lot of backlash in the tech industry where employees are really upset about some of the applications they're being asked to work on, um, surveillance technologies, military uh, applications, for example. So who gets to decide whether a military surveillance application is good or evil? That is problematic from an organizational perspective. So again, I could see why, um, say, a legal team would encourage management to walk that evil language back. Um, this is actually a question that you've heard me ask many times in a lot of contexts in our work together, which is who gets to decide? right? I think we're fairly good at deciding on the far edges of, you know, if good and evil is like a, a bell curve. I think we're pretty good at deciding the, the far tails, but then it starts getting a bit grayer on the inside, not just from individual to individual, but from culture to culture, or even from industry to industry. So I think by thinking about doing good, I, first of all, I would love us to use a carrot instead of a stick, 
So there's that as well. But I think just giving ourselves some flexibility and to say, let's explore this space. A lot of times folks go into an innovation space with extremely good intentions. They want to solve a problem that they think is very important. And if you're not careful, your solution can metastasize into something else entirely, right? Twitter is great for giving people a voice. It also has caused massive political problems, right? Mm. Did someone know? I don't know. We can table that for another discussion. But thinking through, again, these permutations of what could be happening, having trusted thought partners who are going to say to you, uh, hey, Chris, did you think about this? Or, hey, Chris, you know, um, here's the Black Mirror version of what you could be working on. Mm. Black Mirror, if your listeners don't watch that show, that's their homework. Go onto Netflix and, right. and watch Black Mirror. Uh, do I think the future is going to turn out that way? No. But I think it's extremely instructive for us to be having those conversations, encountering those catastrophic scenarios, and then designing for a future that leads in another direction. That's why I read science fiction, um, because it's a safe space to play with these ideas before you're actually in it, and then you're in firefighting mode. So I, think, I think there's a lot to offer here, again, by coming from the space of, I want to make the world better. How am I going to do that? And how am I going to make sure it actually happens as time goes on and things change? Because everything changes all the time and we have to be ready to adjust to that. Mm. When, when I'm looking at organizations out there from, from all kinds of industries, um, I mean, there's, uh, it's hard to point to any one company, let's say, that, you know, they nailed it, right? Uh, no one is ever going to do that. It's way too big and it's way too complicated. And I think to add to the complication here, we're even seeing that some of the organizations out there that are most under fire for being unethical are also some of them that in other ways are doing the most and experimenting the most in trying to figure out how to move more responsibly into the future, leveraging technology and, and, and developing new offerings, etc. Are there any organizations you look to that in, in some way, shapes or form are sort of leading the way in regards to responsible business and infusing ethics into their business? So I'm, I'm glad you asked that because the example I want to give is actually the opposite of what you just said. So one of my favorite examples of this, an ethical business has actually been Unilever. So, you know, they're, uh, they, they've had this push from their previous CEO towards this very sustainability forward, mission forward thing. And you might have noticed a couple of weeks ago, there was one of their major investors put out a statement saying, why are you doing this? It's mayonnaise. Like what on earth? Do mission and values and all of this have to do with selling mayonnaise? And so we're at this interesting point now where the, the tide is swinging in multiple directions. And I'm curious to see whether Unilever's current CEO is going to stay the course on his predecessor's um, mission, values, sustainability forward, um, not just language, but actual business operations, or whether it's going to swing back toward the more classical definition of capitalism, which is maximizing stakeholder value. It's share, it's, you know, just selling jars of mayonnaise. Um, I would like to believe that they're going to be retaining uh, uh, some amount of this sustainability and, and value-based asset. But at the end of the day, you know, if, if I have to be honest, if your business isn't making money, your business isn't doing business. That's that's it. So I suspect that the the most 
efficient way is a middle course where you are taking some of one of, of this very ethical values-based thinking, but you're also saying, look, we got to keep the lights on. We got to make money. Let's figure out the initiatives that are going to blend the two of those. We don't have to be all things to all people as a business. I think what we need to do is find something that we can do really well, be very proud of and land in the market. And I think especially the way consumers are moving today, particularly younger consumers, I think ethics can give your company an edge there to say, look, this is what we believe in. This is how we're operating. Come join us as a customer. Come join us as an employee. Be part of what we're doing. And that leads me to my my final question here, Tiffany, which is if uh, I were to ask you to look a little bit ahead, let's say three to five years or something like that into the future, where do you see this whole theme of ethics, responsible business? Uh, what, what, what do you see is, is happening there compared to what is happening today? So three to five years is a fairly short time horizon. So I think what I see is a bit of ebb and flow going back and forth. Um, I think of us as kind of... Um, not a pendulum, but I'm, I'm thinking almost like a pinball machine, you know, where the ball like moves back and forth for a while before settling in the spot. That's where I see us going. I think we're going to see more turbulence in three to five years, even than we've seen in the last three to five. But I think what's going to happen on a slightly longer time scale is we're going to move into a new version of doing business that in, in some parts of the world more than others at first, but that is basically saying, look, we're all in this together. Everyone wins when everyone wins. Let's figure out how to do that. And I think the world is moving that direction. And if we're using technology in positive ways, we can actually, you know, technology is not just the product. Technology is the way to do it. And so it's great. You know, we're building the airplane while it's in the air, but this is an amazing airplane, right? We just got to make sure we keep the airplane running and we keep the airplane headed to the destination, which is where we all want to go um, or where we need to be, not necessarily the same thing at any given moment. And this is why I think leadership in business is so important because the leader has potentially the capacity, if not the obligation, to be seeing further than the people who are day-to-day looking at their P&L and figuring out what's going on. The the leader delivers vision. And your vision includes what kind of future your company is contributing to building. And I think that's why it's so important that business leaders are infused with this as well, not just the product development side, but what is our strategy as a company? Where are we going? Where do we want to be? And who do we want to be when we get there? That's why I think your listeners are really going to benefit from thinking about the ethical principles that you've brought up in this book. Wonderful. And uh, uh, no better way to uh, to conclude our conversation for now, at least. It's obviously a conversation that we will be having in many ways, shapes, and forms over the next many years. Uh, Tiffany, if people want to uh, learn more about you, connect, etc., where should we send them? You can come over to my website. It's just tiffanyvora.com. You can follow me on all the socials at Tiffany J. Vora. Um, And I'm out there giving talks, doing podcasts, other things. You can find all that on my website. Wonderful. Uh, Tiffany, thank you so much for joining the conversation here. Thank you, Chris, for the invitation. It was a delight.